Welcome back to Who's Talking. Decades before Me Too, her testimony about mistreatment by a powerful man was a watershed moment in how America came to understand sexual harassment. For the first time, how women are treated in the workplace was front page news, and so was she. While she retreated from the spotlight for years, her new book explores how she's turned her experience into a long quest to end gender violence. You've had a few clunkers in recent years. You think? That's not perception, that's reality. Life is feeling stronger than ever now in my life. How would you rate yourself as a chef? Why, I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Wilder. Anita Hill, welcome. I'm delighted to finally get to meet you. I'm really excited about having a conversation with you. Terrific. Let's start. In 1990, you were a law professor at the University of Oklahoma. You had worked in government for just two years, well before that. If I had asked you in 1990 what you wanted for your life, both personally and professionally, what would you have said? Oh, in 1990, I was actually considering um, going to medical school. What? <laughs> yes, I'd been a lawyer, I'd taught, uh, and I always had a love for science. And uh, that kind of got derailed when I was in college. But I, I, I had talked to the dean of the law school and said, you know, what I'd really like to do is pick up all the science courses that I need and then apply for medical school. And he said, that's great, great idea. I'm something, you, something that you do well in, something you want to do, go for it. Um, things changed in the next few months. As you well, and that's what I've been my next question. <laughs> yeah. I did not expect that answer, incidentally. <laughs> it all changed, of course, in 1991, when you came forward and testified against Clarence Thomas in his Senate confirmation hearing to become a justice on the Supreme Court. I I'm not going to ask you if you regret having testified or, or where the journey has gone over the last 30 plus years. What I'm curious about, though, is do you at all resent the degree to which Clarence Thomas ended up changing everything for you these last 30 years? You know, I, I have worked very hard over the last 30 years to have a good life and a meaningful life. And in many ways, I've been successful. Um, so I, 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 I'm not resentful. Yes, it was difficult at times for me realizing that I was going to have to chart a new life. But I felt like the world and history and my parents and my entire family had you know, given me the skills and, and the wisdom that I needed to do that. You're out with the paperback edition of your book called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. One, one thing that struck me reading the book is that you're not talking only about physical violence, you're talking about what you call a, quote, web of abuse, including economic and psychological violence. Explain with that. Well, what you mean. absolutely. I think so much of what I've learned over the past 30 years has been from people who have suffered. Uh, people who have suffered various forms of violence, from incest to stalking to rape to um, family members being being killed because of intimate partner violence, all of the above. 
And so what we do know is that typically violence, physical violence is accompanied by emotional violence. It can, can be, you know, extortion of sex or it can be where abusers tell their victims that, you know, no one is going to believe them or no one is going to care or they're not, they're not going to side with you. And so it's that kind of violence. But you know, there's also the economic violence. Uh, women typically, but not always women, are extorted from, uh, for their, their wages, their earnings. Well, you talk about the journey to end violence. And the question I have is, how are we doing? Where, over these 30 years, have we made progress and where haven't we? Culturally, I think we have evolved tremendously. I think we've evolved in terms of knowledge tremendously. You know, in 1991, when I testified, there, people didn't even, had never heard of the word sexual harassment, or words sexual harassment. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know if they knew what it meant, that, that it was against the law. Um, they, and then even if it was against the law, they didn't know how to protect themselves, what to do about it. So that, I think we have really moved forward. Um, and we're now with a generation of young people, and I teach young people, um, who have entirely different expectations. They expect everybody has heard of the term. They expect everybody to understand it. And they expect that things will change. That's kind of a cultural shift. And I've seen recently, for example, Clara Nacer, the physician who was molesting athletes and other students. Um, the, the fellow at Michigan at State. At Michigan State. And, and all the gymnasts. And, and the, the gymnasts now who had reported their, their behavior to the FBI are suing the FBI for mishandling their complaints. That's new. So, so I guess the question is, you're saying culturally people are more aware of it, where back in 1991, maybe they didn't even know what the phrase meant or believe it existed to the degree that it did, and now there are avenues to report it. In fact, I mean, you're talking about the uh, the 30 year journey to end gender violence. Right. Have we actually? No, <laughs> we haven't ended it. I wish I would, because I, I, I would have written a, a different book with a different title. Right. You know, it would have been much more of a celebration. We have not put into place the kinds of structures that we need. This challenge, challenging the structures that were in existence, is a step forward, though. Let's go back to 1991 and your decision to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee against Clarence Thomas in his confirmation hearing. And I, and I gotta think, a lot of the people watching out there, a lot of them, because this was 30 plus years ago, are too young to know what a, a huge event this was. I mean, I remember it vividly that we were sitting watching it on TV and we had people around and it sparked conversations. I mean, is this really going on? And, and you know, to your wives, you know, have you, has that happened to you? And for folks who, who don't know, you had worked for Clarence Thomas first at the education department and then at the ironically Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And you testified that he had conducted terrible workplace sexual harassment against you. Let's take a look. He spoke about acts that he had seen in pornographic films involving such matters as women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes. 
One of the oddest episodes I remember was an occasion in which Thomas was drinking a Coke in his office. He got up from the table at which we were working, went over to his desk to get the Coke, looked at the can and asked, who has put pubic hair on my Coke? When you look at that, when you look at that young woman, what's your first thought? It was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. And the fact that I didn't really have any models for this, I, uh, we didn't have lawyers who actually had experience with bringing these kinds of cases forward. We now have that. No, it was the first. Uh, but You were but the trailblazer. This, this was the first one. And so it was all new, but, it, but inside of me was the reality or the realization that, look, you know what happened. This is an important position. This is an important moment that we're in, where the court is deciding to put someone who, by the way, at both education and a EOC, Thomas was charged with enforcing anti-harassment rules. Right. So here's a man who had behaved or engaged in behavior that I believe, and others have said, would have violated the rules that were in place that he was supposed to be enforcing, and now, He's, he's up for the Supreme Court. When, when you went up there and testified, did you think, to, what, did, what did you think? Did you think this will kill his nomination? There is no way this, after I say what happened, the Senate will confirm him? You know, I thought about what I had to do. I told myself, in fact, uh, before I testified, I said, your job is to tell what happened to you. The committee's job is to take that information and make a decision about what happens with Clarence Thomas. So you Thomas. didn't have any particular expectation what the outcome would be? I had no expectation. It was also new. I knew what I knew. I think what a lot of us find ourselves, it's like we don't know what the outcome is going to be, but we know our own experiences. And we believe that whether we're talking to an employer or we're talking to the Senate Judiciary Committee, that they should hear our experiences and respond. Right. Okay. Well, Clarence Thomas responded, and I think it's fair to say that he played the race card and he played it hard. Again, take a look. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves. But what struck, in addition to that, what struck millions of people who were riveted to the television, and I can't overstate what a big cultural event this was, was the way you were treated by the 14 white men, Republicans and Democrats, who were the Senate Judiciary Committee. Let's take a look at some of that. You testified this morning in response to Senator Biden that the most embarrassing question involved 
This is not too bad. Women's large breasts, that's a word we use all the time. All we've heard for 103 days is about a, a most remarkable man. It seems to me you didn't really intend to kill him, but you might have. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a martyr complex? When you watch Thomas and then you watch those senators, what, what do you think? Well, there are two things. With Thomas, it was uh, the idea that he could play the race card as the victim uh, against a black woman who, uh, who you know, came from the same history, um, whose family had been threatened with lynching, real lynching, um, not high-tech lynching, whatever that was supposed to mean, and um, that he could be successful. And that's really difficult because we know now that there was a, a, a whole history of sexual violation of African-American women. That didn't get in, in the discussion uh, at all. Um, that wasn't part of the discussion. I don't think the Senate committee could have heard that. They understood what happened to black men uh, and the reality and brutality of lynching but I don't think they had a clue about the experiences of black women. And that to me says that the, the 14 men who were there should not have been leading a, a, a discussion. They, they should not, they didn't have any idea of what they were even talking of course, about. What happened was the next year, 1992, was the year of the women and voters went out and put a lot more women in the Senate and in the, in the House. I'm well, just... and, and, and let me just say this. I think it was because they saw that the, the way that these men were responding. Right. And they said, you don't represent us. We need people in the Senate, in every office, who represents, who understands our experience. So, so when you hear the way those men were talking to you, is, do you see that as something from a time capsule, a relic of the past, or do women still have to deal with that in their daily lives? They'd have to deal with it in their daily lives. I mean, the kinds of myths that they were throwing out um, about being a scorned woman, the idea that I was killing an individual because I came forward and told the truth about my experience with them. They're all based on these ideas of how women are just vengeful, untrustworthy individuals. And you think that's and, still prevalent well, of today? Of course it's still prevalent. You know, we saw it in the in Justice Jackson's uh, confirmation hearing. Katanji Brown Jackson. Yes who was named to replace Stephen Breyer. Exactly. I mean, so much of that um, questioning that was done by the Republican senators went to trying to, um, to position her as being entirely too radical or not trustworthy or someone who was just unqualified. Um, and, and much of it was racist. There's and another, sexist. There's another part to this story, and that is that the chairman of the committee was a fellow named Joe Biden. And he waited almost 30 years uh, until 2019, when he was just about to run for president, when he decided to call you and to apologize. And let's take a look at how he explained his phone call with you. I am sorry she was treated the way she was treated. 
I wish we could have figured out a better way to get this thing done. I think what she wants you to say is, I'm sorry for the way I treated you, not for the way you were treated. I think that would be well, closer. If you go back and look what I said and didn't say, I, 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 I don't think I treated her badly. Do you think his apology was sincere or do you think he was just checking a box because I'm going to be running for president? You know, I don't know whether it was sincere or not. I can't what did, really what, what say. What did your guts but, but it, the nature of the apology itself was inadequate. I mean, he said, I'm sorry that bad things happened to you. Well, instead of owning it. I mean, he, people, when he talked to you on the phone, well, he said that? Well, he, he, he basically said what he said in that, right. in that moment. He didn't he say, did. I, I apologize for what I did. Yeah, he, he, he began to own his role in it in terms of what happened to me. Uh, he moved a little bit further to it, closer to it. But at that moment, after hearing these, uh, I'm sorry for what happened to you over and over again, I moved on. And by the time we got to, I, I apologize for my role. I wish I had done better. That's fine. But at that point, I wanted somebody, because this was when he was on the verge of announcing his uh, presidential candidacy. I wanted somebody who was going to say, look, I realize the harm that was done to all of America, that as you say, that this was this cultural moment that people were confused and didn't understand what the problem was and why it mattered in this hearing. And, and he didn't rise to the occasion of understanding the depth of the harm that that hearing caused. That is where I was by the time we got to the telephone conversation. I wanted more from the leader of the free world because I thought if you become the leader of the free world, you're going to have all kinds of power to redress concerns that, um, that have been lingering. And they have been lingering. I want to turn the conversation a bit. Here we are. 30 plus years later, and in this last term of the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas provided the fifth vote to overturn Roe v. Wade and take back a woman's right to abortion. Does that decision by him make it even harder for you to, to reconcile Justice Thomas and his years on the court? First of all, the Dobbs decision is about a shrinking of rights. Uh, this, in particular, was abortion rights, reproductive health care and reproduction rights. That was the subject. But you have a part of probably a supermajority of members on the court who um, are willing to shrink rights in a whole lot of places. I think if you read Thomas's uh, opinion in the Dobbs case, you will find that he wants to start looking at contraception. I, uh, he wants to look at, you know, perhaps the, the whole uh, idea of protecting people based on gender identity. I think this is where we are in the, in the country. And yes, Thomas seems to be out in front with it, but he's not the only one. And the, the votes are there to move us in that direction. And I believe that's why we should, how we should be looking 
Dobbs, not just as an indicator of what is going to happen on reproduction rights, reproductive rights, but, but also what will happen to us as a country in terms of how much we value the civil rights of individuals and especially marginalized people. In 2010, 19 years after you testify in the hearing, Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, calls you. You're not there. She leaves a voicemail where she basically says, now it's time for you to apologize for what you said about her husband. Take us back to that moment. When you come home, I assume you just push the button and you listen to the voicemail. I was shocked, but I actually thought it was a prank. I thought, oh, this is somebody pretending to be Jenny Thomas. This is a joke. Or is it? I don't know for sure. So I waited until I actually went physically back to the office and said, let me see what's on the caller ID. And there was the name, the number on the caller ID. So not knowing what to make of it, I called my campus security and said, Ken, is there any way we can find out who this is and what they're doing so they don't do it again? I'm not interested in, in this. Um, so I guess I was, I was surprised, maybe shocked, that it in fact was Jenny Thomas. I had really no idea what to make of it. But I knew this, I knew that I did not want to entertain that kind of call, either on the voicemail or face-to-face, -face. that it was not something that clearly I was not going to apologize for 1991. And I didn't, in fact, believe that the call was a sincere attempt to um, reconcile anything and that I was going to do what I needed to do to stop it from happening. And what do you make of the fact that we've now learned that Jenny Thomas has been deeply involved, both with the Trump White House and with several states, with trying to overturn the 2020 election? You know, I, I think we need to know everything. And we don't know everything about that involvement. Um, I, I think everybody who has been involved with trying to turn over that election really is, is, has put all of us at risk, but in more particularly, put our democracy at risk. And so, yes, that should be fully investigated. And the people who have, are found to be involved ought to be held accountable. And it doesn't matter who they are or who they're married to. In your book, Believing, this was news to me, you discuss your long relationship with a Boston businessman named Chuck Malone. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. So you didn't know about my relationship? <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I don't know. You know, we're inquiring minds. So we, we uh, I don't know. A lot of this stuff comes out. Oh. I, 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 it was the first time. You've been pretty private about it. They're not, there's not a lot on the internet about it. Well, I'm a very private person. Yes. It, and, and that's one of the things that I struggle with because I, and, and so I have a public presence. Um, but by nature, I am very private. Uh, I can say this that that relationship has enabled me to continue doing this work. I, uh, he is completely supportive, and not in the way that he's telling me what to do, but he is supporting what I decide to do uh, with my life and with the work that I'm doing to, in gender-based violence, as well as all the ways that I'm trying to promote equality in this country. And, and I'm not uh, trying because you talk about it in your book. You 
say that you two had quite a cancer scare. Yeah, yeah. That he was yeah. quite ill and there was, for a while you thought you weren't gonna have him for much longer. Yeah, you know, um, and I, I, I really do, my heart goes out to people who have illnesses and family members and as somebody who has been a caretaker and involved with a family member, you know, we have great medical care and he is uh, now involved in some cutting edge uh, therapy treatment. There's a James Taylor song and in it there's a line, wondering if where I've been is worth the things I've been through. Is where you've been worth the things you've been through? Um, so far, and I, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking I, about the last 30 wait years. Wait a minute, but I'm, I'm just going to say, I want to continue to make it even more worth the things that I've been through. Um, my journey is 30 years long in this uh, arena, uh, but I have no intentions of ending it. Anita Hill, thank you. This has been a pleasure. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to get this time to spend with you. Thank you so much. In addition to her book, Anita Hill's podcast, Getting Even, unpacks her experience testifying against Justice Thomas, including a conversation with another woman who wanted to tell her story, but who the Senate Judiciary Committee never called. You can find her podcast wherever you get them. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next.